Good morning. If you would, just take a moment before we open up the word together and let's pray for our time. Heavenly Father, we, as the body of Christ, as your people, are gathered this morning around your word. We pray, renew our minds. Challenge us deeply. Bring us correction. Bring us reproof. Bring us instruction in righteousness by the power of your indwelling spirit. And we pray that in this time, through the posture of our hearts, through our receptivity, that you would be glorified and we would be edified. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning, uh, as he read for us, is in Galatians 5, 13 through 26. If you're going to use one of the church's pew Bibles, you can find that on page 916. Uh, normally I would have some slides for you, but I was scrambling to rewrite my message yesterday, so I don't. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you right now that the main idea of the text, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The main idea that we're going to be exploring this morning is this. Work to rest in the finished work of Jesus. I'll repeat that for you. Work to rest and the finished work of Jesus. And we're going to look at that main idea under three headings. There is still work that must be done. Verses 13 through 15. There is still work that must be done. We should walk in the spirit. Which means work to rest. In verses 16 through 21. And that rest is rest in the promise of the gospel. And verses 24 to 25. Up until this point in the letter, Paul has defended the authority and authenticity of the gospel that he preached. In chapters 1 to 2. In chapters 3 to 4, he is bringing correction and instruction regarding what has become known as the Judaizer heresy. Remember that the Judaizers were teaching that the Gentiles had to keep the law of Moses if they wanted to be saved. Paul's correction and his instruction throughout the letter can be seen as a series of contrasts as he compares the false gospel preached by the Judaizers with the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul has been maintaining that he preaches. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is very simply that Christ has done for us what we could not do. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and yet Jesus was without sin. Thus, Jesus has become for us a substitute. The death that he died is a death he died for us in our place. So that through Jesus, the righteousness of God is given to us as a free gift. It's a wholesale free gift. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time leading into this because... At, at 5.13, what Paul is doing is he's switching from explaining the doctrine to talking about the application of this doctrine. Once he's explained the gospel throughout the letter, now he says, so what does this mean for us? How are we supposed to live in light of this truth? And vital to understanding this passage, 5.13 through 26, we need to remember that Paul has been arguing that the salvation that we receive through Jesus is entirely a work of God on our behalf without any human effort. In 3, 1 through 14, 
he emphasized that the Judaizers were teaching a salvation by works, by human effort. The gospel of Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is the good news of salvation by grace through faith. Now, this is an important point for us to consider this morning. So I want to define these terms. Salvation comes by grace. That means it's unearned. It's offered to us only because God is love. Salvation is offered to us and accomplished for us because God has been moved to compassion by our helpless and hopeless situation. So God designed, he brought to pass, he accomplished salvation in a unilateral way. And we know that word from politics, don't, don't we? Unilateral. On his own initiative. Without cooperation from anyone else. God saves and we contribute nothing to it. Indeed, Paul has been arguing that we cannot contribute anything to it. And that the only condition placed upon our salvation is faith. But even then, Paul would have us know that faith is not a work. And we're prone to try to make faith into a work, aren't we? To say, oh, if I could just believe if I could just muster up some faith, if I could just learn how to believe and just trust. And any of us who have walked for any time in Christ know that faith is no easy thing to believe. Rather, faith, I think the best way for us to define faith, if we want to understand it, is to define it as rest. To have faith is to stop all human effort. To even stop trying to have faith. Stop trying. Listen, faith is a free gift of God by his grace, just like all of our salvation. He gives us everything we need, even faith, so that salvation is completely of God. It is a gracious, unearned gift. Even the ability to receive it is a gift from him. Now, some of you may be tempted to disagree with that. I've heard a lot of Christians say, God offers us a free gift and we just need to receive it. But you know, you know what I thought? Let's, let's talk, look at something else Paul wrote. Uh, most of us have memorized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? That's a common memory verse in the churches, right? So, so, so I'm going I'm to read this, but I want you, if you've memorized it, say it with me. And think about the words as we say it. For it is by grace you have been saved. Feel free to join me. Say it. Get it in your head. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is what Paul's been arguing in, in chapters 1 through 4. Paul repeats himself in these letters, writing to different churches. Slow down your minds and think about what he's saying. By grace you have been saved through faith. All right, we get that part. I just talked about that. And this is not of yourselves, this means the grace and the faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works. That's what the Judaizers were saying. That it was by works. And he says it's not by works so that no one can boast. No one is going to stand in the presence of God and say, look at what I did. Listen, brothers and sisters, let me ask you, why are you saved if you're sitting here saved this morning? And when we stand in the presence of God, are we going to say, I'm saved because I chose Jesus? Don't do that. 
You're not saved because you chose Jesus. We need to have our thinking corrected and challenged. We are saved because the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover all of our sin. We are saved because God has enacted a rescue on our behalf. It's not because of anything we did. We've contributed sin. We contribute dysfunction. Paul says this is what's in this passage this morning. That list of sins in 19 through 21, that's what we contribute. And this salvation that comes to us by grace through faith, it's a complete salvation. This is the other important point. The first, before we get to this text, is understand how our salvation comes to us. The second is to understand that this is a complete salvation. We're not just talking about future fire insurance, although it is that. He saves us from his wrath and from an eternity in hell. But it's also a salvation that is in the past. He has saved us from our sin. From all the sins we committed before and the guilt that's associated with them. He has saved us. It's a current salvation. And this is where really we're going to dwell today in our conversation in the text. It's a current salvation. He is saving us not just from our enemies on the outside, Satan and the world. But he's saving us from ourselves. Even now. By the power of his indwelling spirit. All of what we hope for. Every blessing, every need, every concern, every trouble, every question, everything that we need is fully met and answered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it comes to us by grace, through faith. There is nothing for us to do but rest in his promises. So we can agree with the Apostle Peter. If I could read to you from 2 Peter 1, 3-4, he said this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. He has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature. And that's where we're going to dwell in the text this morning. By the indwelling spirit of God, we have been made partakers of the divine nature, the very nature of God. This is what Paul has been explaining in this letter to the Galatians. And, thir- and, 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 to, and, to, and to, to refresh your memory, because I know you've been going through the book, in 3.15 through 29, why was, Paul, why was Paul talking about Abraham? Why was he talking about Moses? Because he wanted us to understand that not only are we saved by grace through faith, but this is always the way that God has dealt with his people. Always. From the beginning in the garden when he promised a savior, it was by grace, through faith in the promise. Always this way. God's unilateral work through the, through the epics of time on our behalf. The difficulty for the Judaizers and the Galatians, and for us, is that the natural human, which Paul calls in this text the flesh, it's hardwired for working, aren't we? We're hardwired for working. When we talk, when our, our language betrays us. We say, I am going to do this. And even if we were to ask you, you know, what is the basis of your salvation? Well, I, I, I believe, we, we get the, the word I just can't get out of our mouth, can it? I believed, and I go to church, and I read my Bible. The natural human thinks that salvation is a thing that the human can accomplish. And if we're speaking in the flesh, we're going to speak in these terms. 
See, the world claims to know the difference between right and wrong, though they do have some minor disagreements among themselves. They generally all agree on what's right and what's wrong. And they think that they can get to it. They think they can attain it. They think they can accomplish it. This is why the governments of the world and all of these social service agencies are working so hard to solve the problems of humanity. They think they can do it. Given enough time and space and knowledge and resources, we could figure this out. That's the default human mode. That's our default mode. Because though we've been saved and have the spirit, yet the flesh is still with us. And isn't this what Adam chose in the garden? He said, nah, I got this. We can figure this out. We don't need you, God. That tree looks good. I'll have some of that. And what did he get? We're living in it. Turn on the news. So the Judaizers and all humans seek to self-direct, self-justify, and self-help. Because we could do it. But the message of the gospel runs against that grain. The message of the gospel, first of all, declares that humanity is helpless and hopeless. And that was what Paul said the whole purpose of the law is, to show us our helplessness and our hopelessness. That's what Paul said in 3.22. Every human effort to keep rules or follow rules, no matter how good and perfect those rules were, and the Jews and the Judaizers were talking about like the best rules, the Old Testament law, no matter how, they, how many rules we try to follow, rather than making us better, it only makes us worse. This is what Paul has been telling us. Every law of righteousness, it doesn't matter how we define it, whether the Jewish way or the Muslim way or the Christian way or the Hindu way, every law of righteousness only makes us worse. You know, there's almost a universal agreement on the fact that we should love our neighbors. How much neighbor love do we see in the world? It's not that we don't know what's right. It's that we can't do it. Every law finally enslaves. It makes slaves of those that try to keep it because perfection is what is required. And nobody's perfect. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of free grace and the gift of faith, that gospel sets people free. And that's where we begin in our text this morning. The gospel sets people free from the consequences of their sin. The gospel sets people free to actually keep the law of love. But not according to the flesh, but according to the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is incredibly relevant for every one of us sitting in a pew this morning. So here in 5, 13 through 26, we can almost say that Paul is answering some possible questions and objections to the freedom that he's declaring in Christ. If we're saved by such a rich and free grace, what about the righteous requirement of the law? Does that mean we don't have to keep it anymore? What about that? What motive do we have for keeping it if it's not fear of consequences or a promise of reward? Or don't we have to worry about it anymore? Does it matter how we live? Because God is going to forgive us. What does it mean for us as Christian people to live free? And Paul is answering that throughout the passage. Leading into it, 5, 6, he said that our faith in Christ, which I've defined as resting in God's grace, it expresses itself in love. Look back at verse 6. You can see it there. He says, faith works itself out in love. 
So our rest in the gospel is not passive. Rest, the word rest sounds passive, doesn't it? But our rest in the gospel isn't passive. Think of it like a vacuum cleaner. When that plug is resting in the outlet, it seems pretty passive. And I tried to, and I tried to imagine the science. I'm not a scientist. But what we know is going on when that plug is resting in the outlet is that the power of, I don't know, is it thousands? Where are you scientists? Millions of electrons coursing through that wire, right? Providing life to the appliance on the other end. So the same is for us. When we rest in Christ, when we are properly positioned in him, the almighty power of God courses through us, producing power in what would otherwise just be a dead implement. When we are resting in the promises and the gospel of God by faith, the power of the Almighty is active in our lives. We are resting. He is working. And according to the truth of the gospel, it has to be this way. This is why I spent all this time explaining what Paul's been saying. When we work, it's a work in the flesh. And in our flesh, there's nothing good. Put no confidence in your flesh. There's nothing good there. Don't think that there is. Whenever we try to contribute to the work of God in our lives, all we do is mess it up. Paul says here why. Because the flesh and the spirit are contrary to each other. We can't add to what God has done in the gospel. And we can't add to what God is doing through us in the gospel. We can't add to it. Our part is faith. It's to rest. It's to trust. And then by faith, mountains will be moved. The dead will be raised. And all of the power that has been promised will be manifested. Yes, even in your life. Even in mine. Even in this church. Even at Fieldstone. Even in western New York. We sang this morning that God raises the dead. Bones become armies. When we rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, look at 5, 13 through 25. We see right away that's what he's talking about. He says this in verses 13 through 15. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. There's still work to be done. He says the whole law is fulfilled in what? One word. Love your neighbor as yourself. But what was going on in Galatia? Look at verse 15. He says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What did they think they were doing by following the Old Testament law? They thought they were, getting, they thought they were becoming more righteous, right? They thought that they were establishing their righteousness by following rules. What was really going on in Galatia? They were biting and devouring each other. Why? Because they were trying to establish the righteousness in the flesh. There's nothing good in the flesh. By trying to establish their righteousness in the flesh through outward signs and forms rather than resting in the gospel promises of Jesus Christ, what they found instead of righteousness was divisions, backbiting. Look at verse 26, envying. There was no power. There was only dysfunction. 
Freedom from sin doesn't mean freedom to sin. The gospel provides a way to escape the wrath of God, but the gospel doesn't nullify God's justice or his righteousness. Rather, what the gospel does, as we've described it, is it fulfills both God's righteousness and his justice, and it's fulfilled in us who walk by faith, not by sight. So it's still required that we love our neighbor. All of the laws summarized there. Didn't Jesus say so? He said what they, when, the, when they stood up to, to question him, the lawyer said, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole law. That's the law that the Judaizers were trying to keep. It's fulfilled in one word, love. So there's still love. Look around you. You've been called to love one another first. Look outside these doors. You've been called to love the people that you see in the cars driving up and down the road. When you go to work, look around you. You've been called to love those people. Kids, when you go to school, look around. You've been loved to call to love. You can call to love your fellow peers. But we can't do it. So what's the solution if we can't do it? Well, look what he says in verse 16. Walk in the Spirit. By which I will define, redefine that, say work to rest in who the Spirit is and what he's done for us. Let me read these verses to you again. But he says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Listen to how he describes the flesh. The works of the flesh are evident. That means obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And Paul warns us, as he warned us before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. What Paul is saying is that when we work to rest, listen, it sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not. When we actively rest in the promises of God, I told you earlier, remember what Paul's been saying, it's a complete salvation, which includes, or which the crowning glory of which is, the indwelling spirit of God. Like Peter says, we are made partakers of the divine nature. When we work to rest by faith in this promise, the movements of the flesh, which he describes in 19 through 21, are subdued and suppressed. And the fruit of the Spirit, which he describes in verses 24 and 25, they are produced in us. Active rest in the Spirit subdues the flesh by the almighty life of God. The Spirit himself becomes a spring of life that overflows through us. The love that is called for is not our love, but God's love. What we're looking for is for his love to be poured into us. It's too great. We can't hold it. We want it to overflow through us to one another, into the community, into the world, so that all might know the overwhelming, never-ending, amazing love of God so that they might be saved because there is no other way. 
The flesh can't produce this righteousness that God requires. But the spirit is the righteousness that God requires. He is God in us. Take a look at these two lists very quickly with me. Let's, let's look through them. Recognizing that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, these lists are meant to be, show a contrast, right? To show opposition, to show that one has nothing to do with the other, right? The things that we see in one list. Have you ever done Venn diagrams? You've seen those, right? This is a Venn diagram that if you have the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, there's nothing that overlaps. There's nothing in there. There's nothing in common between these categories, The flesh is opposed to the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Sexual immorality, deeds of the flesh now. Impurity, sensuality. All of those have like a sexual connotation to them. All of these sins that the world commits in the flesh, whether it's uh, sex outside of marriage, whether it is homosexuality, whether it's the whole transgender thing that's unfolding, all of the ways in which humans find ways to violate God's commandments, what the law requires about our sexual identity and our sexual activity, all of these things are contained here. He says, this is of the flesh, and those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Idolatry and sorcery. Now, those things were much more obvious on Paul's day. I mean, they, they worshipped little statues, and they had magic spells. What are they for us today? What it is for us today is all the ways that we try to get around God to get what he won't give us or to get what he forbids. And so we worship money because we want more than what God has allotted for us. Or we worship pleasure. Or we worship sleep. Or we worship possessions. Or we worship fame. Yeah, we're way too sophisticated for little idols, right? We don't bow down to little statues but we'll worship a thousand gods to get what we want. That's the flesh pursuing its desires. And sorcery, well, that's making a comeback, isn't it? Wicca, Ouija boards, tarot cards. I thought I saw one on, on Sheridan the other day. There's a tarot reading place. These things are becoming more prevalent. But it's just another way to try to, why are they casting spells? Why are they having seances? Why are they asking Luigi board questions? Because they want something. Their flesh is lusting and desiring for something that, they, that God is not going to give them or that God has forbidden them. And so they find a way to work the end around. God says people who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This next section we could tackle in a big chunk. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And what is he talking about? All of the dysfunction of human society, self-serving, backbiting, one-upmanship, water cooler talk, gossip, slander. These things are of the flesh. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And drunkenness and orgies, I hardly have to say anything about. We live in an alcoholic society. Alcohol's everywhere. Partying. Living for the weekend. TGIF. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what Paul is saying is, here's not a list of things not to do. 
Paul is saying, I want you to recognize the flesh. I want you to understand that if these things are present in your life, they are your enemy. It's going to kill you. Paul wants us to use this as a template so that we can discern where is the flesh at work, where is the spirit at work. If you see these things in your life, brothers and sisters, and don't lie to yourself, family. If these things are in our lives, these are the reason that the world is not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And what we mean by that, this is the reason the world's going to hell. They have no place in the life of a believer. You can't have it. And Jesus. Remember the Venn diagram, there's no overlap. You can't have both. But the fruit of the Spirit, now notice the difference. Deeds of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. One speaks of activity, the other speaks of rest. How does a branch produce fruit? Jesus explained it to us in John 15. What did he say? I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. That word remain, that, that, that word abide, it means to rest. How does the branch produce fruit? It rests in its relationship to the vine and it just naturally produces fruit. It just happens. It happens because the life of the branch is present in the vine, producing the life that only the branch can produce. If there's no connection to Jesus Christ through the gospel and the indwelling spirit, then there's no life. There's no fruit. And notice that it's fruit, singular. And then he gives us nine things. Grammarians, you should be like, why? Right? Why, why is it a singular and then plural? Because this fruit is singular, the life of God. That pours itself out in a, in a multitude of multifaceted faceted beauty. It's one diamond with many beautiful faces to it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Love for God and for our neighbor. Joy, Jesus says. Joy, unspeakable. Peace that passes understanding. Patience in the midst of trials. Kindness, even to those that oppose us. Goodness. Faithfulness towards God and man. Gentleness. Self-control. Temperance in all things. Against such things there is no law because those things are the fulfillment of the law. These are the fruit of righteousness. The flesh can't produce these things. Only the Spirit of God can produce them. And he gives them freely to all who rest in the promise of the gospel. And so moving on now to verses 24 to 25. He says that that rest is in the promise of the gospel. Verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This freedom that he's talking about to choose to live in the spirit rather than to the flesh. This freedom from the law of sin and death. This freedom has been accomplished by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's past tense. 
It's a done deal. There's no more to do but to rest in it. He says, you have crucified the flesh. It is the substitutionary death of Jesus that cleanses every believer more, that cleansed every believer, making us a suitable dwelling place for the Spirit of God. By God's grace, he accounted the death of Jesus as our own death. So that it's just like if we died with him. So that when we put our faith in Christ, 2,000 years ago when Jesus was hanging on the cross and dying, we were there dying with him. That's how God considers it. That's how it really was in God's eyes. Even more, by faith, we have indeed actually been crucified with him. And by his cross, our flesh has been killed. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 24. Every sinful passion, every ungodly desire... All of what was listed there is the deeds of the flesh. They have been sealed in the tomb of Jesus Christ. The cost of freedom was the death of Jesus. And the cost of freedom is our own death with him. But what do we sing this morning? God raises the dead. So when Christ was raised, we were also raised with him in the same way that he was. So that now we're cracking open the book of Galatians and we understand where Paul is coming from. What did he say in verse 320, or excuse me, 220? Turn back just a page. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now we can understand what Paul's talking about. He died with Christ. Brother and sister, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you have died with Christ. And yet here we are, living and breathing. But God forbid that we live and breathe in the flesh anymore. But let us live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Let us live by faith. In the promise that he has poured out his Holy Spirit. We can't see it. You look in the mirror, you don't see Holy Spirit. Even if you look deep in your eyes, you can't see it. But we feel the power of God when we have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. Don't think you came up with this stuff on your own. It's fruit of the Spirit. And we can say what Paul said in Romans 8.11. Listen to this, Romans 8.11. If the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies by his spirit who lives in you. That's what Paul's talking about. We who have faith in Christ have died with Christ, and now we are alive again by the Holy Spirit. So what is he saying in verse 25? He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What is our conclusion then? Our conclusion is this. We need to work to rest in the finished work of Jesus and to live at rest and the life-giving power of the Spirit. That's what he means by walk by the Spirit. And in other places in this letter and elsewhere of Paul's writings, to live by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. This is all of what he's talking about. Work to rest in the power of the Spirit. We don't look to the self for love. We're supposed to love our neighbor. We don't look to ourselves. We look for God's love for our neighbor. 
Shoveling their sidewalk might look like love, but that's not love. The fulfillment of the law is to actually love them. Like to actually do it. Not just appear to do it. If you don't see these fruits of the Spirit in your life, I'm not talking about the appearance of peace. You know, when people say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. No, I'm all right. Everything's good. We're going to talk about the appearance of it or mere words, but real peace. Real peace. The world around us is in chaos and turmoil, but our hearts are at rest. Practical thing. So how do we do this? Like you might be saying, okay, so what do I do? I want this. I want the fruit of the Spirit. How do I, how do I do this? We already know. We just don't believe it. We struggle to believe this. We already know. Prayer and fasting. Fellowship. Read the Word of God. Memorize the Word of God. We already know these things. We're looking for more because we don't believe it. We want more things to do because we don't believe that rest is the way to go. Because the flesh is telling us, no, it can't be that easy. Who said it was easy to rest? To just stop? To say, Lord, I can't do this. The reason that I spent all that time talking about the gospel that Paul is preaching is because we live in the same way we were saved. We live by grace through faith, by resting in the promises of God. If you think that coming here this morning is making you righteous, you're wrong. If you think that singing the right songs makes you righteous, you're wrong. If you think giving your tithe is right makes you righteous, you're wrong. If you think any of these things are improving you, you're wrong. Christians, aren't we prone to, to look down on each other? Well, I give 10%. This is why it's good not to know, by the way, what people give. I give 10%. He only gives 8 Well, I give 25%. They only give 10 None of that matters. What is he saying? No external law keeping at all matters, but faith working itself out through love. And what he's going to say by the end of the book Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, nor tithing, nor church attendance, nor anything else upon which we want to hang our righteousness. None of that matters, but a new creation. The power of the Holy Spirit producing his fruit. And he'll produce the fruit in his time, in his way, by grace, through faith. That's the message of the gospel, and that's the life we live. Amen? As we go to respond in song, let me pray for a moment for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we sing this closing song, that it would be a prayer of our heart. As we cry out for rest, as we cry out for the peace and fruit of the Spirit, Lord, we look to you here in prayer. Show us your power. We give up on ourselves. We give up on our abilities. We give up on the flesh. Father, teach us moment by moment what it means to rest, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and show us the amazing almighty power of God who raises the dead. Do a miracle among us, things that we cannot ever take credit for, things that are for our good and for your glory alone, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.